edition of the Brothers Trek About, the original series. As always, my name is Matteo, coming to you live from Austin. Well, live on <laughs> record, live on something else. Anyway, whatever, I'm here, and over in Houston's my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. Live long and prosper. As always. Well, here we are back to talk about the episode Miri, the 11th episode that they recorded, but only the 9th episode to go on the air. This was due to the uh, low amount of practical effects needed in this episode. Now, no phasers really used in this episode. No phasers at all used in this episode. We got a couple of things where the uh, ship is coming to the planet. The ship is orbiting the planet, and then the ship is zooming away. But that's pretty much it we as far as the practical effects in this episode. We got a phaser. We did? Yeah. What happened? Where was that? Um... Uh, what's her name? The second... When they meet the girl who's slightly older than Miri. Oh, that's and right. she jump, jumps on Kirk's back and he shoots her. He's like, why is she dead? Uh, you know, I... That is so... You are I so right. the lowest setting. You are so right. I'm glad you remembered that. And he's like, "My, I shouldn't have killed her. I was... The, the gun was on stun. <clears throat> so, I'm going to start this episode off with a... Um, a quote from Gene Roddenberry himself, which is this. It is just impossible for one person to produce, write, and look over a show so extra extraordinarily complex as Star Trek. What I became during the first half of the first year was a full-time script rewriter, and you just can't do that in addition to fulfill all your other producer functions. So a call went out to try and find a new producer. Uh, there were three other people that they had in mind. But uh, none of them were available. So the fourth call went out to a veteran of the Wild Wild West, who was a producer of that one. Uh, of this, the producer at the time, Robert Justman, said, Gene was fatigued and so was I. We both nearly didn't make it through that first season because of overwork. We were at our wit's end. And honestly speaking, Gene Ronberry probably would have died had it not for, been for the introduction of Gene L. Kuhn. To the uh, series, the second most important gene when it comes to the original Star Wars series. Oh, whoa, sorry, the original <laughs> Star Trek series. Oh boy, need more coffee. <laughs> so, uh, funny thing about Gene Kuhn, he was a uh, creator on two other uh, series that we would know from back then. Neither of which did he get credit for. The first one was a uh, naval show that was originally going to be an hour-long drama, which then NBC decided that they couldn't produce, so they decided to make it a half-hour comedy. And the name of this naval show? McHale's Navy. Kuhn, in fact, wrote the first two episodes of this series, but, then, uh, but still wasn't given uh, a created-by credit on this one. He also had the hand in bringing in a Frankenstein 
show to TV. His idea was to cross Frankenstein with the Donna Reed show. Uh, this script was handed off to two other fellows, and that eventually became the show called The Munsters. So uh, they get he got paid off on this one, but still didn't get that all uh, all, all loving uh, created by credit, which uh, didn't bother him at all because, as his wife put it, he loved to write. Some people had this to say about him, uh, that he was a uh, crusty old character, that he was a uh, mean guy. But uh, a lot of people found that once you got below the surface on him, that he was really kind of a, uh, a nice gentleman. Letter Nimoy had this to say about him, that Kuhn was a sensitive, kind man, but on the surface he could come across like a James Cagney, Spencer Tracy type, the sort of character you would, crass, you would cast as a tough 1940s newspaper editor. So uh, they brought him on to uh, produce, and uh, his first task was uh, the task of rewriting a script that Roddenberry had already approved but had been struggling with over the last couple rewrites. Which brings us to Miri, folks. Here we go. The introduction of Gene L. Kuhn, not only as a script rewriter but as a producer of the show. So before Gene got his Gene Kuhn, sorry, got his uh, uh, mitts all over this one, it had already gone through eight rewrites before it went to film. Anthony Spies is the name. Uh, it looks like Spies, but it's actually pronounced Spies, was the guy who uh, originally was uh, sent this rewrite. Uh, he kind of took the idea of Lord of the Flies and kind of made it a, uh, uh, you know, its own sci-fi spin on it. Uh, it had gone, he had already done uh, three rewrites, or three rights, three rights, three rewrites, two rewrites, three scripts, uh, before uh, he handed it back to uh, Roddenberry saying, I can't do any more with this. Uh, there was kind of a back and forth between these guys uh, over that uh, last and final rewrite, which Roddenberry wanted him to do, but Spies thought he had done enough on to earn the writing credit. Uh, Roddenberry even went so far as to send a letter to his agent, you know, basically saying, you know, if Spies would have paid better attention to the Bible that I gave him, uh, you know, gotten more into the feeling of what Star Trek is, then uh, this next rewrite, or, or then that last rewrite that he did would be much more set to go than it is right now. Spies did, uh, answered this by taking a job on another show. Later, neither of them uh, were found to hold a grudge. In fact, later in life, uh, Rodberry had this to say about his own self. I, uh, for want of a better word, am crafty. I'm likely to push too far, to push a little over the edge to see if it works. And then if not, then not. In the, uh, up to this point, too, they had uh, both agreed that the Miri's world should be described as another Earth. This would allow for contemporary Earth-like below locations and clothing, thereby also saving money, which Robert Justman always approved of, too. They so also I have came a quote here. Yeah, go ahead. So this is uh, from Gene Roddenberry in his original okay. pitch. The parallel worlds concept makes production practical by permitting action, adventure, science fiction at a practical budget figure to use the available Earth casting sets location costuming and so on so they're thinking we can just wander through the back lot find something that's not being used oh look it's a parallel earth oh we need native american costumes well they've got those in central casting you know we've got a you know props that we need yeah no problem we'll just you know get them out of the bucket that everybody else is using 
oh, we're, we're you know, going to be Nazis this episode? No problem. We're going to be Romans? Yeah, we, we got those supplies. You know, they're all in the, in the studio uh, already. We'll just be borrowing them from either central casting or from, you know, other kinds of resources. So we'll get Bread and Circuses. We'll get uh, Omega Glory. We'll get uh, uh, Patterns of Force. We'll get the Paradise Syndrome. We'll get a lot of these. Um, and sometimes, you know, there'll be explanations like, uh, well, this is a case of contamination. You know, so the one where they show up and everybody's a Chicago gangster and they all have to wear hats and, uh, you know, Kirk basically takes over the operation. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's an episode with contamination as the explanation. But in this episode, they show up and the first thing we see is the continent of Africa. Right. Uh, in, in my particular episode, in a totally cloudless sky. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you had some clouds. <laughs> I did. I had clouds. You had no clouds. I had no clouds. And, you know, so what do we make of this, this perfect Earth? And in one sense, showing us that it's Earth is a way of signaling, yeah, this is a parallel world's, you know, episode. And, you know, you get a variety of explanations in uh, William Shatner's book, Preserver. He argues that the preservers rebuilt Earth at the subatomic level. Other explanations that, you know, come out in various source material is that, you know, this is from a parallel universe that got uh, shifted into our universe. So they'll always have these various explanations. Eventually in Enterprise, they will come up with a kind of general overall explanation of why we keep bumping into parallel Earths. Um, and this is the Hodgkin's principle in which, you know, if you have a similar starting point, it's very likely you're going to end up at a similar ending point. And there, we do see this, this principle in biology. So, for example, the marsupials of Australia end up fulfilling niches environmental niches in ways that look like uh, the mammals of uh, Africa, Eurasia, North America. So you get a very cat-like creature, a very dog-like creature, um, even though they're marsupials and they really have no reason to otherwise mirror dogs and cats other than they are exploiting the same niches, environmental niches. So, I mean, there's a biological argument for why things might turn out similar Obviously, Star Trek has the everyone's a humanoid, you know, situation, which is if it turns out that this is a particularly effective form for, you know, creating a sentient life that will dominate its planet, then you'd expect to see it happen more than once. On the other hand, there's the idea that, like, alien life can be so alien, you know, we don't even understand it. It's, it's a mold. It's, a, you know, something else. And we'll see more of this in later Star Trek. And, of course, you know, you see tons of it in, you know, the cantina in Star Wars. But for, uh, for Star Trek, one of the themes that will get worked in is that most life in the, in the galaxy that we're going to encounter is going to look very like us, with a few notable exceptions, like the Horta. That's true. Two eyes, usually, uh, usually two eyes, usually, you know, two nostrils, one mouth. That usually tends to be the uh, type of people the type of creatures we stumble onto in Star Trek. And so, you know, in 
the original series, typically it's going to be a little bit of makeup that will identify that you've got an alien. Funky ears. Yeah, oh yeah, you've got some funky ears, a lot of face paint. And haircuts. So, uh, you know, in, I, I believe the episode is Back to Eden, you know, they kind of like put white dye in people's hair and, and you know, make them orange. Uh, otherwise, you know, face paint is, is and of course, we've got the famous, you know, black and white episode. Right. Later on, Star Trek will be known for using forehead and nose prosthetics as its main way of yeah, exactly. making someone into an alien. Well, all of that said, what I don't understand is why even make it a parallel Earth? You know what I mean? Why not just make it a very Earth-like setting and then just move on? You know what I mean? There was no reason to... And I was going to get into this later, but I'll, since we're talking about it now, the thing, is, what the other thing that bugs me... <laughs> Okay, so first of all, why not just make it a different planet, right? Make it similar to Earth, but why, you know, but why make the continent of Africa? Why show, why show the continent of North America? Like, it doesn't, you wouldn't have to do that. Just make it a general landmass like you do in a lot of the other planets, and then we don't even have to talk about it again, you know what I mean? Right. Because it's not even a thing that's even brought up or answered in this episode, which is one of the things that I think if this were a little more modern, they would have they would have taken a stab at. They're like, we're not going to put this in the story for no reason. But they totally put this in the story for no reason, it seems like. I think part of the reason is that over time, they get more comfortable doing Earth parallels that don't have to be exact parallels. Right. Either because they realize it works, the audience gets it. You know, we just have to show this alternate society that looks familiar enough and when we do something dystopian, like they reached too far, they shouldn't have meddled where they where they meddled. In this case, with life extension or life prolongation. Yes. The second thing, too, that I wanted to bring up about the planet, which, again, I was going to get to later, but I'll bring up now, is the idea that <laughs> that, <laughs> that whole town square does not look like it belongs in the 60s. You know what I mean? There's a plate. There's a they they do an obvious shot of a place where you can rent horses. Like that didn't sound oh. very like 1960s to me. You know what I mean? It was very yeah. strange. Like so, had they just said again, why get specific about it? Had they just said, well, this is the early 1900s, then it could have been whatever time. You know what I mean? It could have been the 50s. It could have been the 30s. Like all those cars weren't 196 cars that were in that episode. I mean, it's. It was, again, why get specific if you don't have to? Sometimes it works against you, I think. That's just my opinion in this episode. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think there's a lot of places where they just seem to have this anxiety that if we don't hit you over the head with the Earth parallel, that you won't go, hey, wow, are we, are we meddling with some kind of science that maybe we shouldn't be, whether it's you know, in the nuclear field or some kind of bio, uh, you know, ethical problem that we're going to create. Well, we haven't hit the prime directive yet, so. So, you know, there's lots of these things with one of the themes of Star Trek is the question of humanity, right? So we've already broached this question in what are little girls made of? Robots are not people. We're, we're going to not include robots as legitimate people. And so you can't, it's not legitimate to replace people with robots and think that's okay. And here, we're going to raise the question of, you know, if, if we go through radical life extension, are we still humans? I mean, is that an appropriate thing to be messing with? 
And so, you know, Star Trek's going to raise this this issue as though, you know, maybe this is a problem. Maybe the, maybe the consequences won't turn out the way you think it will. All right. So uh, John D. Black, who has been the script supervisor up to this point, is this is his final final polish on any of the scripts. Uh, he gives too much away, though, before uh, in this episode. Uh, if you read that other script, that other version that he did, uh, Miri already suspects that she's going to turn. Uh, he just gives too many of the mysteries away. I'm going to go through as we as we go through the episode like I always do, and I'm going to start hitting those mysteries and blah, blah, blah. But in the, his version, they just gave too much away, and it didn't work dramatically. So that was another uh, impressive thing that Gene L. Kuhn did when he took over writing this episode was that he, uh, he started adding and layering in those mysteries and those questions that start popping up along the way. So, so it, just, it just so happens... Uh, before we started this this uh, podcast, I was listening to someone talking about ideological fiction, and they were talking about Steinbeck and Anne Rand. And you know, one of the problems people have with didactic fiction is if you don't agree with the author, you end up feeling like you're being hit over the head with the the ideas that you're supposed to be embracing in the story. And then you'll have other people say, you know, that the purpose of a story is that you have to worry about the characters and ask what's going to happen next. And I think we have a kind of related problem here in the science fiction and that someone is so interested in getting the cool science fiction ideas into the story that they don't bother to create a story in which we as the audience wonder what happens next. Because that's the hook that's going to mostly work for us unless we're total science fiction geeks, in which case we might be happy thinking about life prolongation and, and uh, science gone awry. So are you saying that about the previous draft or about what the episode turns out as? No, the, the, the okay. previous draft. So it's, it's critical to make good television that for most people, you have to, you have to be concerned about what happens. Yeah, next. absolutely. It can't, it can't it can't all be about the speculative question of, well, what if we unleashed a disease that turned out to be a plague? Isn't that interesting? You know, Kirk yeah. says it um, when he's talking to, oh, no, it's it's Spock talking to Yeoman Rand when he says, uh, she's probably 300 years older than you are. Think about that. And, of course, that's, that's what's going on in, in the bones yeah. of the script is that they're going to put this interesting scientific speculative question out there and go, think about yes. that. And then, of course, if they don't get around to writing a compelling story, <laughs> <laughs> we have a problem. Well, plus, just practically speaking, you got to have people engaged so they come back after the commercial. That's also the, the case, which right. we see many times. We've talked about the broadcast standards before of the 1960s. Uh, one of the notes that they put on this one is uh, it says, Restraint is necessary here so that the sight of the small boy creature will not alarm or shock the viewer. Please, ab please avoid the obje objectionably grotesque in general appearance and makeup. So you almost have the question of like, 
are the special effects really that bad in the 60s, or are we only allowed to make them so crazy and grotesque or so, you know, made up to look real? I mean, is there is there might be even some thought behind the fact that we're keeping them keeping them purposefully, you know, like almost can tell this is makeup. Fake looking. Yeah. So Kim Darby, who's the uh, plays the lead character of Miri in this one, uh, she was 18 years old at the uh, while filming this episode, but obviously playing only somewhere around 14. Um, in 1969, you would then go on to see her star next to John Wayne in True Grit, and she would also share top billing with William Shatner in a sci-fi thriller called The People in 1972. I thought that was amazing. Also, uh, go ahead. Do you? Uh, so it it turns out she was just on uh, Star Trek dot com. Oh, really? She has a uh, uh, one woman show that has uh, just come out. Oh, interesting. And so she had a lot of acting experience by this time. She had been a child actor. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let me look it up. While you're looking that up, I'll uh, add this that uh, she later admitted that she always fell fell in love with her leading man, admitting that Uh Shatner was no exception to this. Uh, She said of him, he was great to work with, he was extremely professional and right on target, and he was completely there for me in each and every scene. So she must have loved all those hugging scenes. Yeah, it's got to be difficult being, uh, you know, like 18 or whatever while you're while you're doing this kind of stuff. Yep. Okay. So it's not it's not the girl who played Mary. Nope. So we'll have a little bit of editing to do here. Yeah, that's fine. Oh, Michael J. Pollard, who plays Jan in that episode. He's the crazy uh, weird guy with the curly, um, curly blonde hair. The older male. The older male. He was actually 27 when he was cast in this role, uh, but he was also playing 14. Uh, his big break came when, in 1958 when Bob Denver, who was playing uh, Maynard G. Krebs on The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis, was drafted into the Army. So they brought Pollard in to replace him as like Maynard's weird cousin. But uh, uh, Denver eventually flunked, flunked out of the uh, armed services and uh, returned to Dobie Gillis. So Pollard's character was quickly written out, but that helped uh, catapult him into uh, other TV jobs. <clears throat> At the time he got Star Trek, he was already being considered by Warren Beatty for a prominent role in the 1967 mega hit, Bonnie and Clyde, for which he would receive a Golden Globe nomination and an Oscar nod, as well as Gene Hackman, who also uh, got an Oscar nod in that, for that movie. Uh, there's a few other kids who were uh, scattered about in the uh, in the uh, onlys in this episode. Uh, Darlene and Don Roddenberry were on set. Leslie and Elizabeth Shatner were on the set, as were uh, Scott and Jonathan Whitney, who were sons of Grace Lee Whitney. So, all sorts of stu- all sorts of kids thrown into that one. One other kid that our uh, listeners may know from other movies was uh, the toothy kid who says "bop bop" all the time. Uh, he was the, uh, brother, <laughs> brother of singer, actress, Connie Stevens, and also was in, uh, 1962 To Kill a Mockingbird playing, uh, Dill, uh, Harper Lee's childhood friend in the, in the thing who is based on Truman Capote of all people. So 
I did not know that little bit of info that uh, that's who that character is based on. But anyway, he was in that movie as well. All right. And uh, that's it. Let's just jump right into it, if you're ready, sir. Yeah. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So, and uh, boom. This thing just kicks off right away with this teaser, doesn't it? They are receiving an old-style SOS pattern from the third planet in the system. Earth style. Earth style, exactly. Uh, the Enterprise tried to re return the hail, but there was no response. But then my question was, is that if it was an old school SOS pattern, why would they think that anybody could return the hail? That's the real, that's the other question I had. Uh, we already talked about it being an Earth style planet. No colonies, no vessels have been out this far, so it's a very strange place for us to find uh, an Earth-like planet and people who spoke English. <laughs> on top of it all it's our it's not our earth but another earth not a, not only do they speak english you know and we get this name miri and of course when they say it you don't know whether we're just getting a particular dialect saying the name mary you see it spelled and of course they spell it differently but of course this could also be the ellis island effect where some guy just writes it the way he hears it but uh when he tells Mary that his name is James. She starts calling him Jim. No one has to explain to the people of this parallel world that, you know, you can shorten James into Jim. She just knows. That's yeah. how parallel. It's <laughs> an interesting point. You know, they've got, they've got alternate words for like, you know, fully and grups and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But she knows that James is shortened into Jim. <laughs> Well, I think that like when it comes to the onlys and when it comes to grown up or when it comes to grups, you know, these are just words that have been shortened over the, you know, past 300 yeah, years, yeah. you know. So it's not that they You totally get that kind of, you know, when people are trying to imagine, you know, what will be slang in the mm -hmm. future or you know, how will words, how will uh processes that we that happen in linguistics that we know happen, contractions uh, you know, combinations, compound words. What will this look like in yep. the future? And how will we have to create a little bit of... And, of course, it happens quickly with kids. Well, I've got a great example coming up soon. So I, there you go, a little teaser for the next few minutes. Uh, we come back from the opening credits, and it's Stardate 2713.5. This is uh, almost uh, a 1,000 days after Balance of Terror. Isn't that interesting? Lots of things, lots of boring stuff must have happened in the meantime. We beam down close to the signal. The planet is sort of established in three shots. It's sort of like this old, dilapidated, uh, you know, town, basically, you know, that looks, again, to me, like it's from the 30s or 40s or some time. But again, as I said, they specifically call it the 1960s. Although. I mean, this is the thing to remember, is that architecture is always earlier than the period that you live in. That's true. But again... So, you know, if you were to, if you were to actually visit a town in the 60s, you'd probably see a, the new construction that had happened in the 50s. And then, of course, lots of stuff that was from before the Depression. So it would look like a lot of the 30s. When they were doing the costumes for Mad Men... Yeah. 
one of the things that they wanted to focus on is that they would know what year it was taking place, but of course people had built their wardrobe over previous seasons. Yeah. So you'd actually maybe wear a dress that would have been very new in 1959 that someone still would have been wearing in 1961, rather than making everyone look like they just walked off the fashion pages of 1961. And of course, architecture lasts longer than clothing. True. Well, uh, little did we know, this, uh, that's stupid, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, this set was actually uh, the original RKO 40 Acres. Uh, It's where Terra stood. Uh, It's where Atlanta burned. And this exact set that they used was also used as uh, Mayberry in the Andy Griffith Show. In fact, they say that there are a couple of scenes where if you look like back into like some of the other sets, you can actually see the bank and Floyd's Barbershop. So that's pretty funny. (laughs) That is funny. Uh, so, uh, the team sort of separates. There's a red shirt that wanders off on his own. You always got to worry about those red shirts. Nothing ends up happening to him, but he wandered off on his own. And I was like, oh my goodness, this can't be good. Uh, we get a nice shot of, uh, of, uh, Kirk fiddling with a trike and then he hands it to Spock. (laughs) So then just for a moment, you have Spock holding onto a trike. I thought that was a nice little, uh, shot there. So Bones is then playing with it, looking at the wheels spinning in, and all of a sudden he's attacked by a zombie out of nowhere. What is happening? A fight ensues. Kirk knocks him down, and the zombie begins to cry about the trike. He's, uh, and Spock says of him, he's humanoid despite the distortion. (laughs) (laughs) And then Kirk says, yes, but the mind of a child. So this is, this is interesting. Uh, So... Watching this, I hadn't thought of them as zombies. Mm-hmm. We, of course, live on the other side of the, you know, the, the zombie phenomenon. Yes. In which, you know, the idea of zombies is, is huge in in all its uh, various forms in, in movies and so forth. Yeah. But this, of course, takes place much, much earlier. And they're not... One of the things that happens when zombies and vampires become vogue is that we explore varieties of them. We got sparkly vampires. We got our true blood vampires. We got our, you know, uh, Buffy the Vampire vampires. We got classic vampires. Buffy the Vampire vampires. (laughs) That's right. You know, so what happens is, you know, you start getting all these different varieties, these subgenres of the thing. And so for us to look at these creatures and go, oh, look, they're, they're zombies. It makes a lot of sense. But to them, of course, they're before all this. I, I, I don't think that they would have seen this as zombies. Oh, no, so totally not. Totally not. I think it's interesting because it, in, in all respects, they really do function as zombies in the way that we would. you could make a zombie movie in which it totally works this way and people would, would just get it and go, oh, yeah, zombies. Because we get a lot of explanations about zombies, about how you know people were tinkering with something, they unleash a plague, and suddenly the zombie apocalypse happens. All we need is for them not to die instantly. Right. You know, we need some, we need some more walking around and attacking people who look at at tricycles. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we want to help you, Kirk says. Liar! The zombie yells and then starts to hysterically laugh. I think. And then it dies. Uh, They hear a sound and they chase it. Then they hear another sound and they chase it. 
Then they burst in with phasers at the ready to find a little girl in a closet. Don't hurt me, she screams over and over again. Take readings, says, t- says Kirk. Spock takes the task force to go do so, and he wanders off into the street. Kirk and Rand talk to the little girl, try to find out who, uh, try to find out who she is. She tells them of the grups and how they die. There are kids here, she says, but they aren't sick. We find out her name is Miri. Kirk befriends Miri by calling her pretty. <laughs> Back to the Spock task force. Spock's here. Spock hears a noise and calls for guards. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, he follows the noise, and then they hear na 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 na, which you have to think. Well, I thought it was creepy now. <laughs> and again, in the 60s, you had to think was probably really, really, really creepy. Yeah, especially for television. Exactly. <clears throat> Spock returns with his report. There are children, ca- Captain. Lots of them. Lots of questions being asked here, but no answers, right? Why did the grubs die? Why did the children survive? Why are there so many of them? So I think it's funny. So we've talked before about how, like, I mean, at least as far as, like, the Meyer Briggs things goes, that they sort of make Kirk kind of whatever he needs to be for the episode. Right. For the most part. And so it's... So I think that what happens here is when he starts using his charms, you know, on Miri here, it's like it fits the character, but I don't know if this is necessarily the same Kirk we would see in other episodes. So one of the things they establish is that Kirk is very charming. <laughs> well, that's true. And that uh, Kirk is capable of, or like there are lots of opportunities where it seems their strategy is Kirk will charm whoever he needs to charm. Right. And so, you know, I think they sometimes rely so heavily on this that he can feel like he's an artisan. <laughs> when I think, you know, the he's, a, he's an ESTJ, that's the way he, he acts most of the time. Right. So I think he's just a charming ESTJ in the way that ESTJs can be charming in the sense that they establish confidence. I know what's going on here. Follow me. I'm a reliable leader. Right. Um, they can be friendly, um, outgoing, amiable. But of course, they're not that thing that the artisan is where he can seduce you. So, you know, artisans can be good at that. And in that sense, Kirk should not really be a good seducer. Mm-hmm. But he should be somebody who, when you see him, you want you want to trust him. You think he's got things under control. I like him as a leader. That is certainly the Kirk we know. So using these charms on Miri, he gets uh, he gets her to take them to a hospital. Uh, at the hospital, we then see that Kirk is infected. He has the disease that will turn the mole to zombies. Commercial on a true dun 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 moment. <laughs> Back from it, it's Captain's Logs, uh, started two seven one three point six. They have found the hospital. Everyone is infected, of course, except for Mr. Spock, because he has that crazy Vulcan internal system. Uh, Bones calls up for specialized uh, uh, equipment. Apparently, our cool 20th 20th century technology isn't enough for him. And look who's at the... 
Oh, go ahead. So speaking of uh, the Myers-Briggs type here, right? You know, this was this was a moment where you really got to see it, where Spock st starts talking about this 20th century, you know, equipment, right? Yeah. Um, manual operated, optical, microscope, you know, he's, and uh, of course he's a TE, so he's going to be, you know, doing this very TE thing where he's like describing the features of the thing and it just irritates the heck out of McCoy who is sure does. who is an FE isn't going to have any TE in his stack and that's the kind of thing that would always you know irritate the McCoy Spock and of course lots of times you know, you're on the ship there's no tension and Spock's just going to be like you know thinking ew I don't like when you do that but not saying anything about it or it would come out as a quip or, you know, like a, a joke or a barb. Here, there's no, you know, there's, there's no space in which he can turn it into something else. We get exactly what he feels, right? He can't convert it into a clever remark or a cutting attack or a witticism. It comes out as pure irritation. You know, stop with the analysis. It's good enough that it just works. So, of course, you know, McCoy is an, you know, ESFJ scientist. So he is a scientist. He's a serious scientist. But he's not someone who's going to TE. He's going to be a guy who TIs. And so this kind of, like, I'm just going to, like, describe the features of the equipment that you're using is <laughs> just, like, so irritating <laughs> to, to McCoy. And it's, of course, because of the type. This is why you should always, uh, you know, be familiar with Myers Briggs, so that you can see these uh, irritating workplace uh, things break out and go, <laughs> gentlemen, <laughs> I'm going to intervene here with some HR skills. <laughs> so when they uh, call back to the ship, look who's at the look who's at the uh, communication bank. It isn't Uhura, but it's Funny Face again. <laughs> this is his uh, third and final time on the show, so. That's uh, fun that we get to see him one more time. Yeah. Kirk tells uh, Kirk tells Funny Face not to send anyone down. They can't risk further contamination, even if they get sick. Clear the memory banks and wait for the order. And That's what I love, love that he says. So they're really in mid-communication, right? And right. he's like uh, objecting, you know, wait, maybe, you know, we should, uh, you'll need more resources, you'll need more assistance. And Kirk just is like, Gives him instructions, says Kirk out, and shuts off the communicator. We're done here. Yes, exactly. But I love that he tells him to clear out. He goes, clear the memory banks and wait for orders. It's like, all right, we got to shut everything else down on the computer. We need as much RAM as we can get right now because yeah. we're going to need some serious memory right now. We, everybody close your windows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't want to see anybody playing Galaga. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I leave myself notes thinking, oh, I'm going to remember this one. <laughs> All it says is, being a red-blooded human has its disadvantages. Yeah, so there's this conversation about how, um, why Spock doesn't have it. Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, yes, Because, of course. of course, his blood is based on copper, and when yes. copper becomes oxidized, it's green rather than red, like iron. Yes. And so Spock can be a carrier, but he's not going to get it. Right. Or at least he's not going to get it right away, or like the you know the thing would have to mutate. And so when when <laughs> he then points out the thing, uh, red-blooded human has its disadvantages. Yes, thank you for clearing that up. All right, 
So we find out uh, information about the life prong prolongation experiment. Uh, so we wonder how much luck they have. Uh, apparently not much. Well, in one sense, it works really, really well. <laughs> right, I guess, for the kids. Yeah. They could just be kids forever. Another captain's log, McCoy's equipment has been beamed down, which is funny because it's all like these like spectrographic microscopes. It's all these like words put together. So it's like, well, this sounds really cool. Here we go. So Spock tells us that this happened over 300 years ago, years ago but then asks the questions, how are there still children here? You know, Spock explains the uh, glandular changes that happened during puberty. He actually uses the word puberty, which they didn't use in Charlie X, but they used it here. Uh, so, you know, this brings out more questions, right? This, this is really starting to drive the plot along. You know, why are there still children? Who keeps the line going? That was the question. You know, if there are still children, then uh, are people having kids? What's happening? Where are these kids coming from? And then, uh, but Miri's still kind of uh, hanging around, right? We wonder why. Kirk postulates that the, uh, that the children need adults. They like knowing right from wrong. The rest... <laughs> right? Exactly. He's such a guardian. The, the rest postulate that there are other yeah. emotions involved here. We start to figure out that Miri likes Kirk, huh? Ipso facto, she must be becoming a woman. Funny face back on the Enterprise... Uh, says a bunch of equations that sound made up. I don't know if they're real equations or not. I'm not a math guy. Yeah. Yeah, and these these numbers, I mean they're like they're crazy numbers. At one point he's like uh you know, pow, you know, to the to the 12th power. I'm like, you know, what are you doing measuring like the gravity <laughs> yeah, right? of, you know, stellar objects? You know, typically if you're dealing with, you know, things in biology, you're going to be talking about yeah. things that are really small. You know, so the you know the quantities of something found in the blood are going to be parts per million, you know, as opposed to anything that's going to be to the twelfth power. Right. Exactly. Yeah, it should have been parts per million. That would definitely make more sense. Um, the humans of this Earth were trying to age one month per a hundred years. That would <laughs> that would make a really long life. <laughs> yeah, so That'd be I mean, a lot to deal with. Biologically, they all would have aged about three months in this past 300 years. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so these children could be immensely old, or should be immensely old. Uh, so then I started asking these questions. Does Miri know that she's about to enter puberty? Does she know what happens? Again, these are the questions keeping us interested, right? They keep building up the level of questions, you know? And I thought about this, too, is that, you know, it's, further, it's furthering the plot right, as we go on, and we're getting answers to questions. Well, okay, now we know what, why they're kids and why they're stuck being kids, but then it asks more questions, you know what I mean? I think that there have been a lot of shows in the past that have sort of, like, thrown up these, like, big questions that sometimes never get answered, you know, like X-Files comes to mind. Um, I keep thinking about, <clears throat> I keep thinking about this because it keeps popping up in my real life, of, you know, The Force Awakens, Right? right? We had a lot of questions going into this episode. What has Luke been doing? What have Leia and Han been doing? Were they ever married? Did they have kids? Blah, blah, blah. Well, we got satisfactory answers to those, but that, but then left us with a whole bunch of new questions going into the next movie. For instance, you know, who is Snoke? Who, you know, who, where does Kylo Ren? Who's Rey's parents? Where does she come from? You know, blah, blah, blah. All these things which keep driving us to go, hey, let's go watch the next movie. Let's keep watching which you would do in a TV show, you know? I think it's really right. uh, great the way they set these up, answer the questions, but set up new questions that will keep us going. We're dealing with children. Immensely old, yes. 
but children. So I wondered about this too because they so they've been living for three hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, wouldn't their life experience sort of help educate them, help make them a little bit smarter? I mean, we know minds can grow, but is is there maybe some kind of you would know this answer? Is there some sort of physical mindset that's stopping them from being able to become smarter? No. Why are they still playing games? Why is it still na 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 and stuff? Yeah, so I think here the argument is going to be the Lord of the Flies argument that you've got a, a culture that emerges which will prevent them from doing the kinds of things you're doing. So you would imagine, first of all, it's the 1960s. So you know, you'd, you'd start with any group of kids is going to have nerds, jocks, and what's the other? Uh, and stoners. Uh, Burnouts. What, what was preppies? It? What was it? Preppies. Yeah, you might have some preppies, um, or like the fifties equivalent. Um, oh, oh, okay. I'm th- like the greasers. Yeah. So you know, you're you know the ones who were smoking and uh, you know may have been doing some pot use and it was the idea of a good time was you know going to some beatnik poetry reading. So. Uh, You'd think you're going to have these different groups, right? Well, how come the nerd group, you know, kids who had a telescope and, you know, were interested in rocket ships? Because these kids are easy to spot, right? We all know they exist. How come they didn't figure it all out? And the answer has to be that because of the Lord of the Flies environment, kids who did that got the bonk bonk, right? That that the rules about don't be an adult, don't be like them, you know, get rid of books, get rid of all the things that remind you of grown-ups, including this kind of reasoning and engaging in those kinds of behaviors are unacceptable because look what it leads to. It leads to that mess. This, this is, of course, what motivates them to, to steal the communicators and to try to mess up what they're doing. I mean, they could have just laid back and be like, well, they're gonna, they've come out of nowhere. They're going to leave it. They're going to get bored and leave, right? Right. And they don't do that. They assume that it's going to result in uh, the hurting and the screaming and the, the cruelty. And so they, they strike. And I think it's because it's, it's of the messed up culture and their experience with with grown-ups, the, the mythology that's grown up around grown-ups. It's like, you know, when you're in kindergarten and one kid takes another kid's toy and they, you know, hit each other over it. Mm-hmm. So Kirk decides he's going to go talk to the children and he's going to use uh, Miri here to uh, find the kids. Uh, we get a look at the children here. Uh, the oldest, Jan, he certainly has a bit of the smarts. He's going to steal their black boxes that they talk into. So uh, here's my uh, here's where my teaser is going is this. So uh, they they say that they can all hide, right? And he yells, "Ali, Ali, oxen free! Ali, Ali, oxen free!" Which made me wonder uh, where the hell "Ali, Ali, oxen free" came from. So I looked it up, and it was this. People think they're guessing. People who would know these kinds of things. Four centuries ago was the first known game of hide and seek, and what they think the actual phrase was was, "All ye, all ye, outs in free." You know, meaning like, hey, the game's over, everybody can come out, and we won't get tagged, right? So, uh, but because, you know, 
kids nowadays don't know what ye, meaning you, you know what I mean? So all they hear is Ali Ali and then Outsen, right? You're, oh, that sounds like Oxen. So it became Ali Ali Oxen Free. Thought that was really interesting. Since we've got a plague themed episode, <laughs> you know, you've also got the Ring Around the Rosies. Right. Uh, which is just a kind of a nonsense string, you know, together. But of course, it refers to the way people would get blemishes when they would get the plague. You know, so one of the theories of this uh, song, you know, Ring Around the Rosy, Pocket Full of Posies, Ashes to Ashes, We All Fall Down, is that you'll get the blemishes because you've, you've been affected to plague. You're going to die. We're all going to fall down. And the theory of how the disease was communicated was through bad smells. And so you would carry a pocket full of posies, um, oh. you know, a sachet of, you know, sweet smelling flowers like you might put in your drawers and that uh, you could you know, smell the pretty stuff and you wouldn't smell the bad stuff and you wouldn't get the disease. Interesting. Interesting. So uh, they, they, uh, the kids are all like, yay, Ali Ali exit free. We're all going to go hide. But the, the older kid's like, no, this isn't a real game. Oh, no, this isn't a game. It's real. So Miri shows Kirk where the kids are hiding. And then another mutation shows up. The kids all run. And here, sure enough, where I've written it down, Kirk fires his phaser at her. But he says <laughs> it was set on stun. But it somehow died anyway. The girl was a little bit older than Miri. Hmm. It appears the danger she is in might be setting in. She is scared and hugs Kirk. Miri in the next scene is sharpening pencils while the trifecta, <laughs> trifecta with a wide-eyed rain look on. Uh, they don't have long. Kurt's physical symptoms have already begun to grow. As for Miri, Spock concurs, she will change within five to six weeks. Spock is a carrier but will never manifest the symptoms, so he can't go back to the ship. And Captain, I want to go back to the ship, he says. Seven days to find the cure. So let's add now, on top of all the other tension, a ticking clock. Commercial. So, so uh, one of the odd things that goes on here, and you know, you you get a sense that the people doing the writing understand how to make science look a little bit glamorous, how to make it uh, look cool, but they don't know what to do with Yeoman Rand, right? Okay. And of course, the original conception of Yeoman Rand, and you brought up how she was supposed to carry the tricorder because she was basically a secretary in space, right? Right. But you could imagine where, you know, so you've got McCoy looking into his microscope, but he wants to take notes, but he's got a secretary standing right next to him, right? Yes. So why wouldn't he just, like, read off what his findings are, and she would be studiously recording it all, you know, and... and you know, when she writes something down, you know, Spock could, you know, pass it to me. He wants to look at it one more time or review it. So, you know, you'd imagine they've got a secretary on hand. Why why don't they just have her be, be secretarial? In which right. case she's she's keeping accurate records. And when anyone is saying, you know, where's that report on, you know, the life prolongation? It's right here, Captain. She would know where everything is at. She would, you know, demonstrate the... You know, when we watch, uh, I'm going to refer to Mad Men again. You know, they had characters there who were competent secretaries. And we right. would go, where's this? People would know where it's at. You wouldn't, her, her job in the show, in this episode, seems to be just to be like, 
caring about the children on the one hand, because she's a woman. And on the other hand, just like looking like, oh my God, this is horrible. As opposed to fulfilling the part that a record keeper and you know the secretarial function would. Yeah. Also, too, she's got to be like just looking at Spock and McCoy's filing system and freaking out. You know, I was thinking that, too. You crazy scientists. You guys don't know how to file things properly. Exactly. Look at all this stuff just on the table. What are you doing? Maybe we should put these in neat piles based on, you know, what they do. So we come back from the commercial, uh, Captain's Log Supplemental. A day has passed. There's no data. McCoy. I think I found it. <laughs> thought that was so funny. I'm like, oh, what a way to bring him back. No data. I found the data. <laughs> <laughs> This, by the way, too, is the second time that we've seen Kirk on camera giving a captain's log. Uh, we find out that it's a chain link of viruses that extend the human life. Now we just have to find a way to stop it. Kirk hopes they'll be able to synthesize the vaccination. Then the na-na-na-na-na's start again. The older boy... Oh, so they, <laughs> so they run out of the room trying to find the na-na-na-na-na kids. Meanwhile... The older kid comes in and steals all of their communicators. <laughs> that was silly for them to just leave that there. Yeah. Here we go. St Wait. God. Crazy noise. So uh, you'd think we saw earlier when they sent Spock out to take readings, and they encountered the kids. You know, Spock was very military. Cover me. Uh, and you know the way they move on doors, right? Right. You know, so like when they first spot Miri and Kirk goes to one side of the door and Spock goes to the other side of the door, it's very clear that Spock, as, you know, commander of the Enterprise, uh, you know, second command under the captain, yeah, is someone who knows military protocol. And so they all have this high level of medical or military protocol, including their ship scientist, until it becomes necessary in the plot. <laughs> Exactly, right. A band. And now, you could also argue the disease was at work here, right? True. Um, so but even it's, Spock? It's what? But even Spock? Yeah. Um, and, you know, they don't even give... I mean, you know, you could do this in a second just by having, like, everyone runs out of the room. He looks back at the communicators, looks at the door, and then, you know, decides to... makes a decision, right? Yeah. And it could all happen with just like, and of course, Leonard Nimoy would be good at that kind of acting, yeah. right? Where it's like all in the glances. But uh, for whatever reason, everybody runs out and leaves behind <laughs> their communicators. I know. In the last episode, if you recall, or no, not the last episode, but in, uh, uh, oh, what was the <laughs> They've all started to blur. What was the last episode? Was that the robot one? No. No, that was two episodes. Dagger of the Mind? The episode before that with the robots. Uh, you know, one of the ways that in the original script, um, in one of the other versions, uh, earlier rewrites of the script, you know, they were going to, Spock was going to be able to tell that it wasn't Kirk because he didn't have his phaser on him, you know? So here we are with all three of the main characters running out without communicators. You're like, nah, I don't think so. But that's all right. We'll give it to him because it makes for an interesting story. Well, yeah. And of course, you know, there's other ways. So like, let's say Spock, as the one guy who's got his wits about him, hung on to his communicator, right? 
Yeah. There's if they if this is the only one they're using and they're keeping it available and they're downloading data with it, you know, there's no reason they couldn't go, Captain. You know, battery life on the one surviving communicator isn't enough. Yeah. You know, uh, we're running out of of juice. And they you know begin rationing it and you know you could you could set up that tension without <laughs> necessarily every you know everyone loses their communicator at once. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, we're back. So star day two seven one seven point three. Three days later, seven hours left. Tempers are high. Why doesn't Kirk send Miri to find the communicators? I don't know. I don't know what they've been doing the last three days, but we'll find out. Kirk bumps into Rand, who drops a glass. She runs out of the room upset. Tensions are high. Aggravation levels are high. Kirk finds her teary-eyed in the hallway. She pulls aside her shirt to show a big blue splotch. Then says, I was always trying to get, to, get you to look at my legs in the ship. <laughs> look at my legs now. There's a blotch. I think on top of her pantyhose, but I can't be sure. It was too quick a shot. But I tried to pause it and look. I'm like, I think that's on top of her pantyhose. Whatever. We'll move on. All right. Uh, at any rate, Miri has been watching this the whole time. Even as Kirk says, we are all frightened. Did Miri just leave then? She walked out of the room? We don't know. McCoy calls Kirk back into the room. They've discovered the virus. And now I've wasted a minute telling you about it, he says. Kirk holds Rand in joy, but not like a hug, more like Celebration. in his hands. Yeah, but like it's in his hands. It's not really a hug and blah, blah. And Kirk is smiling and Rand is looking at Kirk like like, like he discovered the virus or something. She's looking at him with like such great awe. Yeah, he's the leader, oh, so he gets credit. Exactly, right? And then we see Miri. And she steps away. But where does she go? Oh, she's back with the kids we see. She's devising a plan to kidnap Rand so that Kirk will come and find her. Bonk, bonk on Kirk's head. Oh, no. A bonk, bonk on Kirk's head. We can't have it. <gasps> Commercial. Our plot is in the rising action now. Like, we're really going, we're going towards the climax here. Uh... We know of the plot against Kirk and Rand, so we're worried about that. It's driven by the jealousy of a young girl. Will our crew get out of it? I mean, of course they will, but how will they outsmart these 300-year-old kids? Will Kirk get bonked, bonked? We're back. Bones and Spock are trying to figure out the right dosage. They need the computer. Kirk has Miri in his grip. Where is she? Where is Yeoman Rand? Wow, this took jumped ahead, way ahead, all of a sudden. Beery, Beery. Miri plays dumb. She says, I don't know what you're talking about, but Kirk has lost it. Bones has lost it. More escalation, right? Our leads are getting more and more testy, as predicted they would. Symptoms of the virus. Miri doesn't want anything to happen to Jim, she says. We don't want anything to happen to Jim. We're the audience. We like Jim. More ticking clock. We need communicators so that the ship's computer can analyze the vaccine. Otherwise, it's a beaker full of death. <laughs> Thank you, Spock. That wasn't overdramatic at all. <laughs> Kirk tells Miri don't you wonder why you don't want to play games anymore huh don't you wonder why you want to play less with the rest of the kids it's because you're becoming a young woman and you're going to get the disease all of your friends are going to get the disease Miri she has the disease we cut to the school where the kids have ran tied up Miri arrives with Kirk in tow listen to him she says the kids won't listen. Kirk tries to reason with the kids. <laughs> he shows poor classroom management skills here. No blah blah, he says to them. 
One of the kids attacks him, but he easily handles him. His impassioned speech continues. They spookily start chanting, na 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 na, again, third time's the charm, na 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 na. They bonk bonk on the captain with like wrenches and stuff. It looks really dangerous, but he pulls away and his face is now bloody. He shows them their arms, which are covered in the plague. He speaks, he asks them about the little ones. What are they going to do when you're gone, he says. Look at the blood on my face, there's blood on your hands. Who is doing the hurting now? It's not the grups, he says. It's you. But there's not going to be anything left at all. Nothing left at all. You're out of food. Back to Spock. Bones still completely irrational. Says they can't wait any longer. Spock, still rational, says, no, we must wait. It could be a fatal dosage. And then Spock leaves. So... Again, just leaving the hypo now, on the table. So when I watched this, I my assumption was that Spock left knowing what McCoy would do. That Interesting. He, 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 I mean, so they're arguing about what to do, and I think Spock is like, if I leave, he's gonna he's gonna take the dosage. I mean, he wants to try it out. He totally is in favor of uh, not waiting. Yes. All I have to do is remove myself from the situation, and he'll do that. So I'm going to go check out the captain's progress and leaves. Right? Knowing. Well, that's really risky. <laughs> well, he may have decided that McCoy is correct, right? But for all kinds of interpersonal reasons, you know, can't say, you're right. Go ahead. Inject yourself. <laughs> but he, he is capable of saying... I'm going to leave it in your hands, right? I think I know what you're going to do, but without... So uh, there's this... The, are you familiar with the trolley problem? Um, no. So in ethics, there's this trolley problem, and it goes like this. Uh, five people are going to get run over by a train. You can switch the train, and you'll kill one other person on this other track. And then, you know, people have to wrestle with the ethical dilemma. What would you do? Would you kill, intentionally kill one person to save five? And then you can make it more complicated by saying, instead of flipping a switch, and then there's just a worker over here who gets, what if you were to throw a person who is big and, you know, like a fat guy, off a, off a bridge so he would land in front of the train and his weight and mass would prevent the train from reaching down the track and killing the five people. So you know, while so I haven't heard this particular version of it, uh, I've been uh, Jeff and I have been discussing this a lot lately with the self-driving car. Right. Because what does the self-driving car do? Does it save its passenger or does it save the person in the road? Right. You know, it's like the You've same got a ethical problem. dilemma that you. Yes, exactly. That you have with the with the self-driving car. And so. You know, I can imagine where Spock is unwilling to actively take the role of saying, no, drink the beaker of death. <laughs> right. I support you in your near suicidal, you know, attempt to save us all. But he is willing to say, I'm going to walk out of the room and whatever McCoy does, McCoy does. I think he's going to take the vaccine. I don't know. But I, I leave it up to the doctor. I'm going to remove myself from the equation. In a sense, freeing the doctor to pursue the, doc the doctor's natural course. It is the sin of omission rather than the sin of commission. 
So this is this is how I imagine Spock <laughs> behaving in this particular scene. Well, you know, I actually prefer that than the Spock is just dumb and leaves the hypo there. <laughs> but earlier, earlier he left the communicator in the room, so there's no saying. Who knows That's what right. Spock is doing in this episode? So Bones, he's the older guy, right? We know that the uh, the the sickness attacks the older the older a person is, it attacks more viciously than Kirk. He's being ravaged quicker, so he decides to take it. It's a tense moment. Nothing happens at first, and then he thrashes about. Is it going to kill him? Will he live? We don't know. He screams Spock's name and falls to the floor. Is he dead? They ask. Spock says, not yet. Kirk arrives with the kids to find the unconscious doctor. Kirk notices the blemish is fading. And then they do. The this is some rapid vaccination. I yeah, mean, right. Boom. Exactly. Takes care of it. Kirk is relieved. Is this a good thing, Mary? <laughs> the kid asks. She says, yes. Yes, it's a good thing. Back on the Enterprise, we find out that a medical team has been left with the kids. Don't worry, says Kirk. I've contacted Space Central. <laughs> That's what he says. Not Starfleet Command. <laughs> no, not Starfleet Command, just Space Central. <laughs> that is somewhere in the center of the universe. You know where it is. You know what I'm talking about. It's in the middle of space. Duh, it's centrally located. But don't worry, Space Central is sending teachers and advisors. But well, what about Miri? And truant she officers. Was in love <laughs> and truant officers, exactly. They're all guardians. Worry, okay. Of course they're going to send the truant officers. <laughs> <laughs> but what about Miri, Rand asks. Well, I never get in. I make it a habit of never getting involved with older women, <laughs> says Kirk. And they take off. On warp one for their next adventure. Before they do, dun, dun, as they dun. do this, right, we get a kind of a callback to like the, the original pilot. And I've in the in the recaps that I read, people notice this and think this is odd. Why is this happening? So Kirk addresses not his helmsman, not his navigator. He addresses the second in command. Yes, he does, Mister Spock. You know, take us out of here. Warp one. Warp one. Warp one, Captain. And people are like, but well, he's sitting at the science station. He doesn't even turn and operate any controls. He just repeats it. And, of course, this yep. is how it worked in the original pilot. in which Warp one. Right. <laughs> in which the captain gives orders to the first officer. And the first officer then, as you <laughs> yell to them to the, uh, I guess, uh, it was really in the in the original Shatner pilot where Spock was both number one and the guy who yelled the commands. In the original pilot, yes. he was just the guy who yelled the commands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Third in command, well, yeah. second. So we have third. we have no, this third. idea that like the captain, of course, doesn't interact with the crew. He just tells the first officer what to do, and the first officer is the guy who interacts with the crew. A couple of last things here before we uh, wrap it up. The tab for uh, Gene L. Kuhn's first trek was $206,000, over budget by more than thirteen grand. <laughs> the first, se first season episode deficit was now up to $21,000. i am sure the people at Desilu were excited about that. Oh, I forgot to mention this uh, earlier, too, is, is that uh, uh, Vincent McGeevy, who directed the last episode, 
was brought in to do this episode because they were so over the scheduled time that they were supposed to hit that the director who was supposed to come in and, and, um, and direct this episode, uh, because it was running so late, had another gig and couldn't make it. So they just brought in Vincent from the last one and just kept him running. So he had two days to prepare this episode, which uh, isn't usually enough time, but he did it. You know how to solve this over-budget problem? How's that? Let's do a Clips episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it's coming, buddy. It's coming. Uh, so this episode premiered October 27th, 1966, and went up against the very first time that It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown premiered. <laughs> Believe it or not, Charlie Brown won the waitings. A.C. Nielsen believes that over 19 million households tuned in for It's a Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. Star Trek did respectable business in second place, attracting over 12.3 million families at the time as well. You know, but of course, they should have known no one can beat Charlie Brown. These numbers are gigantic. I mean, yeah. so today's television, 12 million viewers would be amazing. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know, I, when uh, Karen and I would watch shows... You know, we would talk about how, how well it's doing. And it was like the two million mark was the, you know, what everyone would hope for, right? Right, exactly. Well, what did you get? If you're getting, if you're sustaining two million viewers, the show is in good shape and will probably be renewed. You know, you fall below two million viewers and you begin to worry. Twelve million? <laughs> oh, my God. Do you know what the next episode is? What is it? I don't know. I don't know. That's what I'm. That's why I'm asking. Conscious of the King. Ah. I'll tell you when. Uh, just based on the, the title, Dagger of the Mind. I actually thought it would be Conscious of the King. Oh, that's funny. Well, that wraps up another great episode of the Brothers Trek About. Join us next week when we hit. The Conscious of the King. Won't that be a lot of fun to talk about? Anything else we didn't get to, Ken? Anything you want to throw in that we didn't mention? No, I think, I think we covered it. We covered it. Excellent. Well, that'll do it. This is Matt from Austin saying so long, and Ken from Houston. Say goodbye, Ken. Peace and long life. That's right, and we'll check you all next week.